0: We're going to turn to Scripture now in uh, Matthew chapter 6, as I've already mentioned. You've sort of uh, gotten a little window on the context already. And know that we're uh, now approaching the portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches us how to pray. And he says this in verse five and when you pray do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners. to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray that your father who is un- pray to your father, who is unseen. And then your father who sees what is done in secret, will reward you and when you pray do not keep on babbling like pagans for they think they will be heard because of their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need even before you ask him then this then is how you should pray our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us today our daily bread forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one and you know that uh, another parallel portion adds uh, one of the gospels adds for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory may God uh, bless us from this his word this is the word of the Lord Father, guide us as we uh, study your word here this morning. May the words of my mouth and the hearts of those who listen be s- directed by your Holy Spirit to impress upon us how we ought to live in this your world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Obviously, um, every every line of the Lord's Prayer could be the topic of a sermon, or maybe a whole series of sermons. I think of all the uh, phrases in the Lord's Prayer. Of late, anyway, my favorite is I find myself repeating it often: "Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven." <laughs> Your kingdom come, your will be done. Maybe it's because as we grow older, we become uh, more eager for God's kingdom to uh, present itself in this world in a more visible, powerful way. But uh, with all the events surrounding us, as, as I be- began to think about this uh, opportunity to uh, to preach, um, it simply struck me. I Presume the Holy Spirit's guidance that, that what we really need to think about more in our world is the nature, the presence, and the power of evil. Maybe that too is a, a gift or a curse of age. <laughs> as a, as a uh, younger man, uh, it seemed to me that it was always the older pastors who preached about sin. You know, the younger pastors are more contemporary. And focused on the more positive realities. Now that I are one, uh, I I I see the evil in our world in stronger contrast to God's word. And it feels to me—and you be the judge yourself—that evil is growing in our generation. I know every generation comes to think that and say that at some point, and yet. Uh, having just celebrated or commemorated or mourned the anniversary of 9-11, how powerfully, those of you who were aware and alert and alive then, how powerfully didn't the presence of evil seem to us when those planes smashed into those towers and set off horrendous fires and destruction that killed nearly 3,000 people. That and and, and more recently the pandemic and how many tens or hundreds of thousands of people affected around the world. That and and the uh, audacious attack of Ukraine by Russia which makes us recall and fear uh, uh, another uh, potential world war. Now it's calming down, apparently. All of that, plus the millions that have been killed by abortion, which is another relevant topic in our world today, And, and all the other evil on the entertainment networks of our world, and, and strange ideas being floated even in our educational process of our youth. And encouragement uh, in our media circles to question your own identity, uh, even to the point of being a male or a female. We, we, we just don't know how to process the things that are happening in our world today. Much that should cause us to worry about the future of our culture of our country, of our cosmos. Well, though there have certainly been more perverted times, I'm sure, if you read history, tragic and difficult times, it would seem to me and maybe to you that evil is less restrained in our world than any previous time that I have personally experienced and maybe that you have personally experienced a few of you have been on this earth a little longer than me, uh, but most of you are now my juniors. I heard Alistair beg. Maybe you follow him on the radio uh, uh, on a daily uh, podcast ministry. Um, I've enjoyed listening to him for some time now. I heard him as I, and it, and it just fit into this line of thought. Uh, just over the last uh, couple of days, mentioned these facts that he found in a book by David Myers called American Paradox, that though we are wealthier in the world today than ever before in in our society, in Western uh, culture, uh, North America, more so than the rest of the world, living in the lap of luxury that kings and queens could not enjoy, as little as 100 or 200 years ago, right? How many of them could have fresh bananas, pineapples, uh, lobsters, uh, um, shrimp, whatever they wished on the menu every day of the week and pull it out of a refrigerator and cook it in a microwave and get in their air-conditioned car and travel 100 miles to go to church? <laughs> Though we live in the lap of the luxury, here's here's the, the here's the, the, the corollary and the uh, the contrast that Alistair Begg quoted, so I replayed it and wrote it down. Since nineteen eighty, not very long ago, since nineteen eighty, divorce statistics in the United States have doubled. Teen suicide in the United States has tripled. Violent crime records have quadrupled. Prison populations have increased by a factor of five. Illegitimate childbirth by a factor of six. Couples cohabiting without the benefit of marriage seven times what it was just in 1980. Well, many other factors could be dug up and quoted and recognized, but enough to remind us this is a scary world and this is a broken world and somehow it seems to be getting more broken despite all of the rich blessings that we enjoy. So maybe it's appropriate to look at the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, a key aspect of which is the existence of and the deliverance from evil. And the first thing I wish to focus on because I think it is so commonly neglected, forgotten, ignored, or denied is the very existence of evil, the very definition of evil. Think about it with me for a moment. Our world has largely disposed of the idea that there is a personal God who created the universe and who wrote the owner's manual for the universe. If there is no creator, and we simply are the culmination of millions of accidents, and if there is no owner's manual provided by that creator, then what is the definition of good and evil? You cannot define good and evil in any uh, consequential way without a rule book. Without that, you're, 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 you're destined to resort only to, well, whatever makes me happy is good. Whatever doesn't make me happy is bad. And if what makes me happy is different than what makes you happy, then we just go our separate ways. You do what you want to do, I'll do what I want to do. And if down the road that conflicts somehow, we'll just have to fight it out and maybe resort to survival of the fittest to quote a common theory there is indeed no permanent objective definition of good and evil once you have disposed of a God who is a creator in supreme authority Um, that explains a lot of the lawlessness of our world by the way when you're watching the news, you wonder, where does it come from? All of this defund the police, all of this remove bail, all of this let immigrants run into the country unregulated, all of this uh, emptying prisons and putting people back on the street, all of this allowing people to live on the street and behave any way they want to with drugs and pornography and, and, and illegitimate behavior, what? Where does that come from? How do you explain that? Well, if there is no God, if there is no right and wrong, then why should we impose our values on someone else? Just let everybody live the way they want to live. Let everybody do what they want to do. Maybe we'll find a more perfect world if we just let everybody do what they want to do. It's not working very well. (laughs) I would assert never will work very well. I certainly believe. But if you want to know where that mentality comes from, it's simply from the fact there is no good and evil if you do not have a God who is a creator and an authority. So Even when we understand that, we're still struck with some dilemmas. We cannot understand the nature of this world without accepting the the biblical story of the fall. Why is there such a contrast of of beautiful sunsets and sunrises and and, and kittens and puppies and babies and and, and beauty of, of life and music contrasted with the ugliness of murder and suicide and drug addiction? How do you explain that unless you understand that god made a perfect world and all of that beauty is part of what god gave us in creation and that all of the ugliness is part of the brokenness of that creation that we brought into it by our sin our sin originally with adam and eve and why by the way does the uh, prayer of Jesus go on to talk about the evil one depending on your translation the Greek is a bit ambiguous could be just deliver us from evil or the evil one but we know that either is appropriate and and evil one is certainly uh, uh, consistent with the scripture in the fact that there was a fall of an angel before there was a fall of Adam and Eve his name was Lucifer He apparently was uh, egotistical enough to want to replace God himself. He was an angel of light and somehow by challenging the God of the universe, he was was, uh, condemned to be bound on earth and to live in a restrained environment until the solution would come in Jesus Christ. You can find references to that in Isaiah 14, Luke 10, and a beautiful uh, picture of a dragon attacking a woman who was pregnant, ready to give birth in Revelation 12. A few other minor references, but we don't know a lot about that. The, The question might be, of course, why would God allow an angel to fall? Or the same question, why would God allow the possibility for Adam and Eve to fall? The very nature of evil is illogical. We shouldn't expect logical answers or answers that we could stuff into our tiny little minds and somehow understand the immensity of God and his grace. But for me at least, a part of the answer seems to lie in the fact that that a perfect world includes love. As a matter of fact, the very definition of God, he says, is is love. He is love. He he, he is equated with and defined by love. And if he was going to create a universe in which love could exist, it could not be constrained or forced, right? Right? any attention i give you or you give me or we give each other that's that's demanded and forced and implemented apart from our free will is not love right it's robotic behavior it's slavery it is not love so in order for god to have love in the universe he had to take the risk with known Consequences, I presume, of putting free will into his creation. Knowing that it would be violated, knowing that it would bring pain, knowing that it would bring brokenness, but also knowing that he would, in the end, demonstrate his love by fixing it and thereby elicit a greater degree of love than could ever be possible without allowing the possibility of sin in the first place. I don't know if that helps you, but it helps me. But that's just simply a way of saying there is evil in the world. It is, it is uh, managed by and directed by an evil one, the devil who would like us to not believe in him. And the world largely denies that as well as the existence of God. But the scriptures assert that we must be alert and sober-minded your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, First Peter five verse eight. That's the first point. Number two, we, we, there is an increase uh, of, of evil around us. We've made reference to that. I, not necessary to spend a lot of time talking about that, but violence and injustice in our streets seems to be increasing in a way that never would have occurred 10, 20, 30 years ago. Corruption in government that we hear about, and even law enforcement at the highest levels seems to be occurring in ways we didn't hear about 20, 30 years ago. Uncontrolled diseases, despite our best medical knowledge, we still can't cure cancers, and we still can't stop, apparently, pandemics. Despite millions and billions of dollars and the input of highest level medical expertise all around the world. Matter of fact, it may have been that medical expertise that released the pandemic in the first place. Nations inflicting pain and violence on other nations and despite the United Nations and NATO and all the other organizations that were created to prevent future wars. And just... Maybe note in passing that prophecy is pretty clear, as you all know, that evil is expected to grow and even appear to triumph before the end of time. Are we in that end of time period? I don't know. I challenge you to always live, however, as if we're in the end of times and always see the evil in our world as an indication of that, and especially challenge the younger generation, some of which are here today, uh, to be diligent and vigilant about opposing that evil, even when it looks like a losing battle. Third point is uh, the danger of just seeing evil as something out there around us. The, the the devil, you know, the devil made me do it, famous line of a... Of a uh, Humorist some a couple decades ago um, we, can, we can externalize all of that sin, right but, but ultimately we must turn and realize that those, that one finger pointed away from us leaves you know three or four fingers pointed back at us. We must understand with the scripture that that, that evil within us is a very real Factor, And as a matter of fact, it may be tougher in today's world to keep a pure heart and a pure mind than ever before. Because of the Internet, because of entertainment, because education, all polluted with sin to a greater degree than ever before, it becomes harder and harder to recognize the sinfulness within us. The innocence of youth grows into the foolishness of adolescence. The foolishness of adolescence grows into the wild passions and temptations of young adulthood. Those passions of young adulthood grow into more devious sins of maturity. When as an adult we clean ourselves up and wear a suit and a tie... And, 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 and clean our car and our house and live in this spotless environment all the while harboring as much or more sin in our hearts as ever before. But we hide it better. That's part of what maturity is. At least by the world's definition. And that devious sin of maturity is not quelled at least in my experience, in old age. Somehow I had the the, um, perception that when I struggled against sin in my younger years, somehow that would dissipate as I got older. The struggle would become easier because as my physical body aged, there would be less of a temptation for all of the, uh, the the physical realities of this world and the pleasures of this world. And so somehow I would look around and see those elderly gray-haired people and say, boy, they, they can kind of just relax now and float a little bit. <laughs> now, I have no idea about uh, how you folks that are my age or above have experienced that. Maybe Maybe the devil just focuses more on pastors than on the average layman. But, but uh, in reality, when I examine my heart and my mind, it is no easier today to fight the temptations and the in, uh, inroads of Satan and sin than it was 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. It is relentless. Satan has so occupied our world, our media, our technologies, our education, our entertainment, every aspect of our world is so permeated with with some of that evil influence that it continues to be a serious challenge and struggle, I think, for every one of us to keep our eyes on God, our mind and heart pure, and our feet on the path that leads to righteousness. That's why Jesus insists that of the four or five things you pray for, Pray that God would keep you from temptation. He, uh, he, he does not tempt us. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He doesn't deliberately tempt us, but he could deliver us from the temptation that Satan puts in front of us. And when we pray for that, he will. And he will give us power to overcome it. He will even give us power to cast out demons in our own heart and in the lives of others. James 4 verse 7 says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. We have a powerful, powerful tool for fighting Satan fighting Satan and his intents and that earlier passage that i quoted from 1st corinthians 10 goes on by the way to say and god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear he knows your limits he knows how you're made he knows the resources he's already put internally within you he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear he will even use temptations to strengthen you like a muscle But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so you can endure it. That's a wonderful promise. If you think about it, the entire course of scripture from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21 is is nothing but a call to action, a call to resist, a call to follow God and fight Satan every step of the way. And the story of Scripture is nothing but a story of all of the the, the millions of individuals and even a nation of Israel doing that to a greater degree or lesser degree. Finding blessings in obedience and curses in disobedience learning along the way to depend more and more upon God and to look more and more for a Savior and then to be given a Savior in Jesus Christ and then to go out and tell the world about the Savior. That's the whole story of Scripture, right? In a nutshell, there are external battles like David and Goliath, like Jericho, going out and, and confronting evil for what it is, even if you only have a knife to bring to a gunfight, like the song says, or a slingshot to bring against a spear. And then there are internal battles, like David and Bathsheba, like, like Peter in his denial three times of his friend and savior Jesus Christ on the very night Jesus was giving himself as a sacrifice for us we're all going to continue to fight those external and internal battles over and over and over that's what life is about and we need to fight them to the end but not to do it alone Remember Galatians 6, the spiritual armor. You don't go to battle without a weapon. And and there are are, uh, parts of that spiritual armor that are defensive, and there's parts of that spiritual armor that are offensive. But you need to be armed by the Spirit, and that could be a whole sermon or a sermon series in itself, too, couldn't it? Put on the spiritual armor, go to battle, confront the enemy at every turn but do so with the power of uh, of an army and a commander who you have confidence is going to win the battle. I was reminded of uh, Braveheart in similar movies where where the the underdogs are are called into battle by a a particular figure who is brave enough, uh, though he feels his own weakness, is brave enough to stand up and call all the others to, to fight the battle, to give your life for a cause that is bigger than you and ultimately win because it was God's will. That's the challenge to all of us, especially to the young men and women among us who have a future to live and increasingly difficult one, I fear. So the necessity of prayer is what it's been all about. Remember Jesus' prayer at Gethsemane? Lord, may this cup pass from me. He knew what was coming. He anticipated the pain of the cross and of death itself. He could pray, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. How human is that? How encouraging is that, that Christ knew that? And when he confronted demons, he told his disciples at times when they were unable to cast out demons this kind comes out only by prayer. Mark 9, verse 29. Don't go into battle without the armor. Don't go into battle without prayer. Don't go into battle without knowing that your commander and Lord Jesus Christ goes ahead of you and beside you. Claim the power and the victory of Christ. Paul, even after Christ was resurrected and ascended, in Acts 16, became so annoyed at a woman possessed with an evil spirit that he turned finally to her and said, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Don't forget to use the name of Jesus Christ, a powerful name, the most powerful weapon we have in our arsenal. Well, much more could be said. I simply leave you with this. I fear for each of you, especially our youth That the world is going to become more difficult rather than less difficult. There are things on the horizon from economic collapse to political confrontations to national, international tensions that look frightening to me, but maybe they have always existed. Maybe I just see them better now. But I trust our God, whose love is everlasting, who redeems us and promises us everlasting life and promises to take us to a place where sin will be no more. If you know the goal, you can continue to fight. If you know the end, you can continue to persist. I beg you all, and again, especially young men and young women, men and women young and old, rise up and fight the battle against evil in our world, knowing that we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. Let's pray. Father, we face an enemy that is larger than we. We face a challenge that is greater than we can comprehend. We see the blood on the battlefield. We see the looming fires and smokes of the campfires of the enemy on the horizon. May we never become so obsessed with the luxury you have blessed us with that we forget we are in a battle. That we're not on a cruise ship, we're on a battleship. Help us to never let down our defenses. Help us to always wear the spiritual armor that you've given us may we be much in prayer and may we be in our minds our hearts and in the end in history more than conquerors through Christ who loves us in Jesus name we pray Amen we're going to turn to a song of the Psalter hymnal that I I suspect is not sung terribly often and When I hit upon it some years ago, I was amazed I hadn't known it better. It is beautiful in its uh, musicality. It shifts keys in the middle of the hymn in order to emphasize what are beautiful lyrics about the threat of evil and the promise of victory. Let's uh, sing it. I hope it's somewhat familiar or you come to make it a familiar hymn in the future. 575 in the Psalter hymnal, and I think we will, uh, no, it looks like we may not stand. Yeah, we do. I see an asterisk. You do whatever you do. (laughs) 575.